Good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith back again with Cinema, coming off of basically a three-week film shoot and returning with episode 96. And this is going to be wrapping up uh, my whole uh, Does Horror Really Need the Oscar limited series? And gotten a lot of great feedback on this, so guess want to just keep going forward and keep asking the, the constant question of this little mini-series is, does horror need Academy love? And again, there's been a huge outcry, a steady outcry. It's always been there, but with the internet and, and social media, it, it comes and it goes, ebbs and flows kind of thing. And uh, there's been a recent demand that you know uh, the genre get treated with respect. And I just saw, it was funny, uh, last night I saw a video of Vincent Price uh, greeting Christopher Lee on his birthday. They had the same birthday for May 27th. And, and the host of the show uh, thanked both gentlemen for what they felt, for what he felt, was not just their contribution to the horror genre, but what he called a vibrant and artistic contribution to the film industry. And I, I thought that right there sums it all up. It's all about acceptance. It's it's all about being accepted into the mainstream and, and validation. So does the genre really need it? No. Everybody likes to be recognized, I guess. And there are people out there that feel because horror is so close to them, and, and I'm one of those people, uh, that you know there, there should be something more than just the occasional nominations or token nominations, which we're going to get into, and that the genre should be taken far more seriously by the Academy. And if you've listened to my previous episodes about this, uh, I kind of go through all of that. And most of all, I'll be circling back in this episode as to why the Oscars, the Academy Awards, were created in the first place. So I've I've basically asked the question, does you know the horror genre need Academy love for, for two episodes? And I've laid out a solid defense that, like I said, it does not, as it appears to be the genre that picks up the pieces during hard economic times and the fallback for studios to save their bottom lines. And look, the summer of 1979 saw this. The U.S. economy was in its worst shape since the Great Depression. I mean, you know, we went through the, the early 70s, mid-70s inflation, the gas lines, and we were coming to the end of the Carter years, and the malaise of the Carter years culminated with Ronald Reagan throwing his hat into the ring again for the GOP nomination under the promise to make America great again. Wonder where we've heard that before. So what reigned at the box office that summer of 79? I did a piece for this on uh, Dread Central for a limited series I did on how the genre, the horror genre, affected my career and my life growing up. And I can tell you, the top films at the box office in the summer of 1979, Alien, Prophecy, and that's the giant mutant bear monster movie with Talia Shire and Robert Foxworth, not the Christopher Walken demonic series, Amityville Horror, the original 1979 with Margot Kidder and James Brolin, and the original George Romero, Dawn of the Dead. And that's just to name a few. Look, I feel that Alien deserved a Best Picture nomination at the least, with Weaver deserving of a Best Actress at the least as well. The film qualifies for a Best Picture win simply for the revolution in the science fiction genre through its art and production design and its contribution to the art and the industry. Directed with a firm hand by Ridley Scott, Alien is important to science fiction and the evolution of film as 2001 was, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey was. 
Turning the monster movie on its ear, it fused incredible biomechanical sexual imagery with intense character development while Scott's Baroque set design for the USS Nostromo and his diffuse lighting scheme forever changed the look of science fiction ships and sets afterwards. And George Romero. I mean, let's stop here for a moment. Not only is he credited as the father of the modern zombie, you know, in reference to cannibalistic ones, but his first two dead pictures had so much more to say about society than normal horror usually delivers. Romero weighed in on the race issue as the post-JFK era was seeing a, you know, the civil rights era about to boil over. And there was George Romero to take on the topics in a genre that at that point wasn't reserved for social commentary as it was in Night of the Living Dead. Now you can extol the horror virtues, but in meeting the criteria that the Academy holds toward qualification, None of the Living Dead, despite its famously low budget, had all the ingredients for a Best Picture nomination at the very least. And while on topic, a brief aside about Tony Todd, who will step into Tom Savini's remake, he is another actor that is an Oscar waiting to happen and, in my opinion, is far too overlooked. And while Romero tackled race and societal issues in Night of the Living Dead, he went even further in Dawn of the Dead that summer of 1979 by attacking us. He keeps up the whole redneck thing in Dawn of the Dead with the rednecks hunting down the zombies and pitting them against each other and basically turning a disaster into entertainment. But the whole thing of consumerism with these zombies invading of all places, a shopping mall, and just that scene of the dumb zombie walking up the down escalator and then falling down to that awful Muzak. It's brilliant. There was so much more uh, to George Romero's Dawn of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead than them just being simplistic horror movies. But then Hitchcock kicked things off at the start of the JFK era with Psycho in 1960. And it is here where if any horror was to win the Oscar for Best Picture and Actor, it should have been Hitchcock's masterwork. Psycho was to horror and slashers what Alien was to science fiction and horror. Horror had adapted since pre- and post-World War II. During the 1950s, the monster was from outer space or the effects of the atomic bomb, and vampires and human-based monsters had receded into parody and to the bottom of the heap. Hitchcock changed that with Psycho. Exterior monsters, I mean the out-there monsters, made the shift to Monsters Among Us with two films before Psycho. I Married a Monster from Outer Space and the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Now the horror lived among us. Albeit the threat was still alien outside of our world, the concept of assimilation that the evil needed to become like us, that it robbed us of our individuality, that was the new horror of the 1950s and where Psycho would take it further. The opportunity to adapt John Campbell's Who Goes There properly into what would become The Thing from Another World would not see its proper translation until John Carpenter's 1982 masterpiece. I will argue that 1982's The Thing is less a remake than it is an original adaptation of its source material. The Howard Hawks James Arness vehicle was a pissed off alien vegetable and Frankenstein monster that, that ripped its way through an Antarctic base until dispatched by electricity. Carpenter's The Thing 
is entirely different. And really the only thing that the films share in common is that a, a spaceship is found below the ice, its occupant is thawed out, and uh, that's really about it other than the title. That's pretty much all they share other than the setting. The Cold War was revving up and the Red Scare in the 1950s had become America's fixation with communist infiltration of all levels of American life and it took center stage. The enemy was no longer out there. The enemy was now us. Now Jack Finney, author of the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers novel, has said that any connection of, or interpretation of his novel to the communist paranoia during the McCarthy area was unintentional, coincidental on his part, and read into by fans and others with agendas. He wrote a horror story and nothing more. That's not what it is remembered for. While the monsters are alien, they become us. They could be your friends, your neighbors, your spouse, your children. The evil wasn't just growing. It was embedded. And the threat was simple. We will make you like us. And I'll go further. I feel that the 1979 remake with Donald Sutherland, Jeff Goldblum, Veronica Cartwright, and Brooke Adams was, if not as brilliant, more brilliant. Because for me, the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 79 remake, is the scariest movie I've ever seen. Because if you look around at our society today, it came true. In that film, I remember when I was teaching, I showed it to my class, especially as, as a, you know, a backdrop to explain not just the 1950s paranoia, but the 1970s paranoia. And I'll get to that in a little bit, which Psycho will touch upon. And I remember the, the scene where uh, it was Jeff Goldblum and Leonard Nimoy uh, tell Brooke Adams and Donald Sutherland that they're not going to hurt them, that they're not going to kill them. Their job was just to make them go to sleep. And when they wake up, they will be reborn into a whole new world, a world without anger, a world without selfishness, a world without greed. And Brooke Adams, I'm paraphrasing here, Brooke Adams says something along the line of, and a world without love. And even though they've been told you can drive the same car, you can have the same house, wear the same clothes, keep the same job, everything is the same. You will just have no emotions. And Leonard Nimoy replied when she said, and no love, he just basically dismisses the concept of love, that it's not only overrated, but it's silly and it's immaterial. And after the film, I looked uh, to a number of my students and I said, would you fight? Would you fight these people? Would you fight to maintain your individuality? Or how many of you would just go to sleep and have it over with? And a majority of my class just raised their hands in favor of going to sleep. And that is why the 1979 film still scares me to this day because of that fear of being robbed of everything that makes us who we are. And I'll add one more thing before I go into Psycho. And I'm not saying that uh, this film deserves an Academy Award nomination, but people always see Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, wrongly first as an installment of the original Halloween franchise, which it is not. And please go back to my previous cinema episodes, and you can hear a whole episode on that and why it is not part of the Michael Myers, uh, Jamie Lee universe. It has nothing to do with anything. However, Halloween 3 isn't really a slasher film. It's a pod movie. Halloween 3 is about the destruction of the individual. 
the evil warlock Cochran, is going to assimilate. He is going to make kids wear masks and uh, they're going to die as a result of whatever black magic he has embedded into these microchips. But they become something else. The world will change tonight, Doctor, and you will have a chance to see it. And uh, that also is a pod movie. And so the enemy is not really some type of outside enemy. The enemy is us. And in Halloween 3, the enemy is the toy industry, marketing, uh, the commercialization of holidays. The enemy is coming to us through our televisions. It is us. Now in Psycho, the evil was always there. It kept to itself and only reacted when disturbed. And it came in the form of a handsome young mama's boy named Norman Bates. I will argue that while Bride of Frankenstein was overlooked for a Best Picture nomination, Psycho was robbed in the Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor categories. If any horror film should have broken the mold and won the gold, it was Hitchcock's Psycho. Psycho represented a director stepping outside his comfort zone, risking the considerable sheen he had built up over the decades in the industry. Some inside the industry even felt it would be the end of Hitchcock's career. Well, we know how it ended up. It launched the slasher subgenre and making us far more aware that monsters are real and they often have the most innocuous of guises. Psycho made us afraid of showers, but it also tapped into a growing national paranoia as a number of social checks were coming due. The growing race issues within the nation were eating away at us like a cancer. White flight to the suburbs reflected a growing fear of racial integration as World War II reshaped the cultural and economic landscapes. Norman Bates was a holdover from a bygone era. In the film, the highway moved and took with it any chance of escape from the motel and Norman's domineering mother. He was left isolated and he was left for dead. Norman was sexually abused by his mother to the point of matricide and then he became her out of guilt. Look, all of this was taboo at the time, but you don't make movies about this kind of subject matter, at least not legitimate mainstream movies coming from one of the top directors, if not the most famous director of his time next to Orson Welles. Hitchcock did a dance with the censors. He famously dodged the shower scene recommended cuts. And how he did that was he sent the uh, censor board, which I still was fu- think was functioning under the Hayes Code. And uh, he sent it there was no MPAA at the time and he sent it to the censors for their review and they came back with a long list and especially on the shower scene and they wanted this cut and that cut and this removed and all of that well back then films came in canisters so uh, Psycho returned to him in a box and all Hitchcock did is he opened the box he took the cans broke the sealed tapes moved the cans around as if they were taken out, examined, and brought back. And he sent all the canisters back to the censor board for their reevaluation, telling them that all the recommended cuts had been made. And when the board watched it, they approved the film, and they were pleased with his changes. Only, he didn't change a scene. He didn't change a single frame. They saw only what they wanted to see. Hitchcock integrated complex Freudian themes with incest, necrophilia, and rape. The imagery of the film, whether intentional or later read into the content, was nothing short of brilliant. 
all of this qualified Psycho for Best Picture. But it was a horror. Hitch was seen as slumming by the Academy. It was black and white, shot by a TV crew. The master of suspense was no better than Roger Corman or William Castle, especially in the cheesy trailer where Hitchcock gives the audience a corny, droll tour of the Bates Motel. And while nominated, there was little chance of him winning. Hitchcock did garner a Best Director nomination. And the film garnered several nominations, no wins and none for Best Picture. But the box office success of Psycho could not be ignored by the Academy, much like it would be the same for Jaws 15 years later. Psycho captured movie tickets, but no statues. So what did win Best Picture that year in 1961? Well, the answer is Ben-Hur. Does Ben-Hur have the longevity and name brand recognition of Psycho? I'm going to have to say no, and then I'll prove that in a little bit. Ask most people the plot to Ben-Hur, and they draw a blank. Ask about Psycho, and people recreate Bernard Herrmann's violin kill music, the wee, 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 in the shower scene, and make the knife stab motions while doing it. Anything like that come to mind with Ben-Hur? Any takeaway lines from the film? You can name two famous lines from Psycho, the standout line being, we all go a little mad sometimes, or a boy's best friend is his mother. And all you have to do is watch Scream. Again, while I was teaching, when Scream came out, it was all the rage. Everybody loves Scream. And the interesting thing about it is, most of the audience that loved Scream were kids that had no idea what uh, Wes Craven's film was referencing. And one time in class, uh, something came up where I, I got to say a line. I said, well, we all go a little mad sometimes. And some kid pointed at me and went, oh, you saw Scream. And I'm like, yeah, but I originally saw Psycho. What? What are you talking about? What's Psycho? What's Psycho? Well, you're 16, kid. Why would I expect you to know? The line is from Psycho. And I had to explain why the kid in Scream is saying the line because it's a reference to Psycho and Norman Bates and that film's killer. And what's the answer you get? Oh, oh, right. Yeah, right, kid. Anthony Perkins became forever tied to the role of Norman Bates, so much that when I saw Disney's The Black Hole in 1980 in theaters and Perkins appeared on screen, I instantly thought, hey, Norman Bates is in space? This is odd casting. Perkins was the fresh-faced, wholesome, handsome boy that most white, suburban, middle-class parents would love to see their daughter bring home. That was the danger. Norman was fine on the surface, much like America at that time, but underneath was something dark and horrible, and it could flare up with very little notice. Psycho was a precursor to the turmoil of the 1960s, very much the last isolated moment of peace as the new JFK presidency would end in less than three years with JFK's assassination. The country would go down the Vietnam rabbit hole not long after. It would be racked by racial unrest and confounded by the hippie movement and then terrorized by the Manson murders toward the end of that decade. And in between, you had the assassinations of JFK, RFK, and MLK. And that would stitch it all together and show us a terrible split image as a nation. All of it is very much like Norman Bates himself in a movie where mirrors 
are important for what they reflect and represent. Yet the Academy looked away. It would not deign to anoint the film a Best Picture award. And Anthony Perkins was robbed. Yet the film endured. 20 years later, it spawned three sequels, with its second installment just behind Return of the Jedi that summer at the box office and held its own all summer long. It launched an entire subgenre of horror that flowered in the late 70s and defined horror in the 80s. Not bad. Now tell me again, what did Ben-Hur do? Little more needs to be said about horror needing an Oscar. It doesn't. It never did. It doesn't need the medals and shiny things Louis B. Mayer felt would be carrots for actors and filmmakers. Horror gets made by people who aren't so easily baited. Their goal is to scare the shit out of you. And if that makes a few Oscars drop into their coffins, so be it. However, that is not the goal. D. Wallace was robbed of a nomination and Oscar in Cujo. Linda Blair should have taken the Best Actress statue just for the physical torment she endured to bring that part to life. Sigourney Weaver got a nomination for Aliens, but I never saw a serious chance of her getting it. However, she more than earned it for that film and its predecessor. And yet here we are in 2021. Nothing for Vincent Price. Nothing for Roger Corman. And at the moment, nothing for Tom Savini, whose artwork and makeup effects define the 1980s, and set the standard for special effects. Rick Baker got some love for American Werewolf, but you can list numerous stars and filmmakers and movies that deserved Oscar nominations in the horror genre. I will state right here that Roddy McDowell's Peter Vincent deserved a nomination for 1985's Fright Night at the very least. So over this weekend, tweet at me your thoughts on should-have-been Oscars. Who got screwed? Ignored? rebuffed. And then think, how did they perform at the box office? And look at what won Best Picture that year, and which film comes to mind to most people today. If Oscars are so important, name the very first film to win one without having to look it up. And then I'll even challenge you more. Name a quote from it. Now, go quote Jaws, Psycho, The Omen, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Carrie, and more. And you know what? There you go. I look forward to hearing your should have been Oscars. In the horror genre, that is. Have a great Memorial Day weekend, and thank you for listening.